Welcome to the Business of Psychology podcast, the show that helps you to reach more people, help more people, and build the life you want to live by doing more than therapy. Before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to let you know about a checklist I've created to take the overwhelm out of setting up a private practice. This is for you if you're new to private practice or if you still aren't completely confident in your systems and processes, and I know it took me a couple of years to get confident. It's impossible to be creative and do more than therapy in your practice if you aren't sure that you've got all the boring stuff like insurance, policies, and data protection sorted. Tick off the boxes on the free checklist and you can see your clients confident in the knowledge that you have everything in place for your security and theirs. That will free up your mind for some creativity and business planning for 2021. So download it now. The link is in the show notes. Now on with the show. Today I'm talking to Dr. Sarah Wassell about life as both an actor and a psychologist. Such a fascinating combination. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Thank you. So should we start by talking about how you came to be such an interesting dinner party guest? (laughs) So which came first for you, acting or psychology? Which came first? Oh my gosh, I think they totally came hand in hand. Um, Yeah, so like in secondary school, I did a lot of drama and I was also the agony aunt in the corner at the parties. Um, I loved watching Trisha. I love um, all of those, all of those uh, typical early steps to a therapist. Um, and I think they were both about, so I grew up in quite a stressful environment and being able to be helpful to other people who were stressed um, was definitely um, felt really valuable for me. So that, that bit, the psychology really fitted with there. And also within that stressful environment, there's not always a lot of room the, there wasn't didn't always feel like there was a lot of room for me so then to be able to have the attention on a stage was just intoxicating as a kid um so yeah so I think it both came from those strands really and how did your career develop from school yeah so I was never quite sure what to do um but I wasn't so very confident um and I was petrified about the competition of drama school Mm. um and uh the exposure really the vulnerability of um putting yourself up again and again for rejection so i decided that i would uh, not face that but trick myself by telling myself that i'd just go to uni for a bit to get life experience because that's what actors should have and then somewhere within that i kind of forgot about the acting i did psychology at uni i loved it um and went full steam ahead down that road really and then I had dear friends who remembered that I could do bits that were good on stage who contacted me in my mid-20s and tried to get me to do stuff again and so I sort of dabbled my toe in trying to give some mates some favours and just loved it and really remembered and ignited my passion for it so I'd say for the last 10 years they've gone back in hand in hand after me lose my way a bit That is so interesting because I think if there's anybody listening to this who knew me as a teenager, I was really into drama and I went to uni to do um, English writing and performance at York because a bit of a similar story. I was like too terrified to embrace acting or performance fully. And I thought, I'll do a bit of academic stuff and then I'll go back into it. 
But that fear of vulnerability was just too much for me, I think. And I never did dip my toe back in the water. So you really are kind of inspiring me um, with that. And I think listening to how you got back into it, it's so fortunate, really, that that kind of came back into your life at the right moment. Yeah, and I think it is about the right moment. So I've had, uh, I've had sort of discussions with my with my mum particularly. I was like, oh, if you'd if you'd maybe supported me a bit more, maybe I'd have felt like I could could have done drama earlier. And where would that have taken me? Because I think sometimes it's a lot easier to get into um, acting world if you're younger. And then really reflected on actually that wasn't right for me. I was so vulnerable as a teenager and in my twenties anyway. Everybody is as a teenager in the twenties, aren't they? Um, the idea of that rejection of putting yourself up there, that exposure, that constant judgment that goes along with acting, you know, what's your weight like? What does your face look like? Um, how can we see you? What's your skill level? So it's just global, global judgment. That would have been so much for a 20 year old. And I think to come into it now in my late 30s, it's still hard, it's still hard, but I think it's um, to feel more confident myself, that feels better now. Mm. And also to have had the career in psychology as, as a foundation, so I have a foundation for my, my self-esteem as a professional. Yeah, so it feels right, the timing feels right and healthy for me, I don't regret that. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I don't know, I don't know how young people cope with that kind of being told you're just not right all the yeah. time and that kind of completely undefined what right is um, I can't imagine how you deal with that while you're constructing your identity it makes a lot of sense to me that it would feel healthier and more possible when you've got to a stage in life where you already know a bit about yourself and about how you are in the world Absolutely, and also identity and also professional boundaries as well, and yourself as a woman within an industry. I mean, I found it fascinating over COVID, actually, the two ways in which the, the professional psychologist as me is treated versus as an actor. So as a psychologist, the risk assessments about, around doing practice um, have been so thorough, so very clear to the point that I can feel very frustrated. Like how hard is it right now for me not to be in a room with a client if an organization I'm working with doesn't feel that fits their risk assessment when you know, they, they're really struggling and really poorly. But as an actor, I've been offered jobs with very little contract, very little health and safety um, um, assessment. I feel like I'm valued much less as a person, as an actor, even though I'm the same person. So if I'd have grown up in my 20s thinking, using that feedback to work out who I was, mm. I'd be a very different person to, to if I hadn't have been a psychologist, just two different cultural worlds. That's really interesting. So I think often we can feel undervalued as psychologists, mm. but in comparison, it sounds like we're, we're much better treated. That, yeah yeah that's really really interesting and and a bit shocking actually I'm shocked that you've been asked to do jobs that would compromise your health and safety in that way as an actor because there are so few roles and there are so many actors you often I think I feel anyway particularly starting out in the industry again that you are often battling what do I compromise and what do I not you want to build up relationships with people. You want to be the yes person. There's huge pressure to be that yes person, um, to fit into it um, to the point that, you know, there's 
there's obviously there's a lot been in the lot in the media about um relationships of and um, people in power in that business with women for example you know how far do you flirt to get the par all these really compromising difficult bits really tricky so it doesn't it doesn't surprise me actually um that within that yeah you are valued less within your COVID risk assessment as well than in the psychology world um, and it's interesting you say about not feeling valued as a psychologist you know I've worked in multidisciplinary teams and there's all different sorts of hierarchies there again a woman being a woman in any business and culture as well and I felt undervalued within that but really yeah I think it is so hard to be an actor and to hold on to your um to your to your self-esteem and sense of value Mm, yeah and it's reminding me a little bit of what it's like when you're an unqualified psychologist when you're working at the assistant level perhaps or even for the young people coming through now at the kind of intern unpaid honorary assistant level because I, I talk to young people who have taken jobs where they're working in environments they don't feel comfortable in they're not really getting any kind of benefit from it, but they'll do anything to get that reference from a clinical psychologist. And, mm. I, and in a way, my trajectory was a little bit different in, in psychology. But I still do remember my first job was in the prison service um, and I was given an assistance role despite not having a psychology degree. Um, and I, I'm aware how lucky I am for any, anybody listening. I'm very aware about that. Um, but that did put me in this position where that was an incredibly male dominated environment. And I, I compromised on a lot of things and um, was that yes person. And was that, oh, yeah, OK, I'll flirt with you if you will do this thing <laughs> and that I need for my job um, yeah. because I was so frightened of not being seen to be doing a good job so yeah I, I, I can imagine I can imagine a bit of what that's like but I, what I'm hearing is that in acting that doesn't necessarily get better whereas in psychology you stick with it and if you are lucky and privileged enough to get to the qualified level that happens to you a lot less and you get a lot more autonomy and a lot more control over your professional boundaries. Whereas it sounds like in acting, maybe that doesn't happen. Yeah. And I wonder each, I guess there's, um, there's the, the instability of the contracts, isn't there? So there's no long-term lovely, well, there's very few, I imagine things that are comparable to your long-term social services or NHS. Um, post with your annual leave and your sick leave and all of these things all of these things that I'd almost started to take for granted as a psychologist mm. so valuable and um, not so existent in the creative arts world and again COVID has really highlighted that you know freelancers really struggling with that as a psychologist you know what it's been great I've just done some zoom sessions in my pajamas and I don't have to commute um there's been you know we thought there's not undermining the effects of emotional burnout and zooming and there's there's lots of stuff about that I'm not saying this is easy for anyone um but in the acting world that means they literally haven't had jobs so of course you're desperate for that next job those contracts are short you have to be on your ball for the next one it doesn't matter what your cv is you can't sit comfortably um yeah a whole different level of of stability really Mm, that's really interesting and you know can we talk a little bit about you know what your psychology work looks like at the moment 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I've just taken the big leap a little bit inspired by your podcast, Rosie, I'll be honest, um, to go independent. So I've just finished them in a social services position. Um, and I specialise in adoptive and foster families and dyadic developmental psychotherapy I'm accredited in. Um, so at the moment I'm doing um, assessments and therapy and consultation for adoptive and foster families and the, and the networks around them. And then I've sort of suddenly started to integrate my worlds. Um, I've started doing some consultancy for creative art projects as well, which just feels gorgeous within this dark, dark 2020 year, because it feels really like positive community psychology stuff. Yeah, so I'm working with, um, I've just finished working with the Unicorn Theatre in London, and they've been developing some theatre making packages um, for schools, particularly the year sevens, who've gone through transition in this tricky time. And I was really impressed that they were sort of responsible and forward thinking and sensitive enough to hire a mental health consultant and just over the moon that that was me and then I've been doing some other work for example looking over scripts to um, people have asked me to look over film scripts to see whether they feel like they're representing anxiety in you know an ethical and responsible way and an accurate way and so dabbling in those bits as well. Wow I think that's amazing I mean especially like, I love the sound of the work that you're doing with the Unicorn Theatre, that's incredible. But also the idea that you're looking over scripts like that, that was something we talked about when I was on training, is wouldn't it be amazing if that was feedback we gave to the BPS, that those were roles that we hoped psychologists might take up and could they help us, support us to get into those roles. So I'm thrilled to hear that you're doing that. Um, and also thrilled to hear that the podcast inspired you to go independent. <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, so what does a typical week kind of look like for you? Yeah, so I have two clinical days where I'm focusing just on just on my clients. And then I'll try and have a day of a creative arts project work so that might be reading over stuff or it might be researching stuff or it might be um it might be zoom meetings and then the rest of the time is kind of shoehorned in because again acting is a boundaryless world and it's not a routine world so I might have to one evening just do a self-tape um which is the new way of auditioning full stop at the moment in zoom world um or you might only have a couple of days notice to do um some filming or to do a role so then um, a good section of my week is worked on juggling childcare to make sure I can get here, there and everywhere for that, for that audition. And then because there isn't a lot going on at the moment, I've been doing lots of um, Zoom training, which has been beautiful. And again, is another way that my worlds go together. So I've been doing some um, training sessions. I've been involved with the Knee High Theatre as an attendee. And that's just been amazing I think the theatre world is so ahead of how to connect through zoom and be um, playful and creative in a way that I feel that the psychology world is just catching up with Mm. behind so yeah and I think it makes sense really that the the two parts of what you do will integrate like that because I think you know both both of us experience mental health benefits from being involved in drama as kids so it completely makes sense to me that you would 
sort of find your values in those projects but how did you kind of come across those projects to work on two routes the first I'm terribly embarrassed of um just pure nepotism um so a dear friend of mine that I used to regularly get drunk with in my 20s is now an incredibly impressive professor in Reading (laughs) and she and she and she'd been contacted and she signposted saying actually I think Sarah Wassell is your lady she she fits in both camps of theatre and psychology Um, and then the second one was through um, social media promotion um, and just making those connections on on Twitter and Instagram and and sharing bits of work and other people saying oh yeah that really fits and I think at the moment especially I mean the creative arts are trying to find their place and trying to find their funding and trying to find their value I say trying to find they have it but trying to market it effectively to get the funding and so things like um, teaming up with with mental health consultants making their aims very clearly beneficial to community really fits so then it's been quite easy to connect with those sorts of projects um, online yeah and I don't think you should be embarrassed by the fact that you used your connections because one of the things the themes of this podcast really and what I'm talking to do more than therapy members it's like you have to reach out to the people that you know and let them know what you're excited about working on what your values are what you want to do more of because often we hide that stuff away and the people who already know how awesome we are might just be the people who can think oh you know I know somebody who needs you um and we shut that down sometimes through massive imposter syndrome (laughs) yeah absolutely imposter but also just um like a British shame so nepotism has never worked for me I came from humble backgrounds and a state school and I was never friends with so-and-so who was son of so-and-so was a CEO um so just huge jealousy for nepotism and that's huge in the acting world as well of course like who you know is so important so I've, I've really struggled with that so to suddenly benefit from all actually it was a friend um felt felt awkward but you're, you're right I mean it's it, if I'm kinder to myself it, it's deserved she knew that I had worked and had expertise in those areas and she was just signposting but um yeah, so I, I'm grateful. I should maybe uh, should give myself that. <laughs> yeah, I, but I, I relate to that. I understand what you mean by that British shame. <laughs> and I think I see it so much in psychologists. It seems maybe, maybe we feel it more than some other professions do. Um, because even, for example, I'm doing some business consultancy with um, a couple of other psychologists um, from the Emotional Health Toolkit. And even just reaching out to our connections, to, you know, friends of partners. And it felt awful. We all really, really struggled with it. It's like, why is it difficult to just say, look, we've got these skills and we're looking for a a way to help people in business. It felt terrible. It felt really, really hard. Um, And it's been such a sorry it's been as you say it's been such a learning point for me again like leaving so I was in social services and then before that the NHS but leaving that where you almost feel like um you know the ideas of preceptorships or that you might get promotion based on merit or experience admittedly those things feel beautifully historic now in many ways <laughs> yeah. but there's still that idea that you know if, it's a bit like school if I just work hard I'll get my grades I'll, I'll get it and this is a different a different world to try and promote yourself for who you are so 
trying to set up as an actor and as an independent psychologist and really thinking about the idea of your brand and who you are and how you promote yourself and what value you can have for someone that's desperately unco uncomfortable I mean as you've talked about many of the podcasts we're not trained in that we're not trained in marketing but we are in a way we're trained in relationships and connecting and being valuable to people but actually to be confident that we can relate to people or be valuable to people that is that is a completely different thing we're much more comfortable with the idea that we might sit faceless and blankless in the corner and let somebody else fill the room with their emotions and their needs rather than think about our role within that yes that's been a learning learning curve for me yeah I think on this podcast we've talked quite a lot about branding yourself and how you do actually have to have a brand identity for your practice um, otherwise it's just really difficult to put yourself out there and know what to say if you've not thought about what you want your sort of public identity to be but do you need that as an actor as well you've kind of got to have a, a brand as an actor I didn't know that yeah so there's a big debate in there so um <clears throat> so some people would talk about um you know as a, as a trained actor you can be anything that's the that's the point you would be diverse you would be um able to perform a variety of things but then there's the reality that when you're meeting a, a casting agent or director they're within two seconds they they judge you up with who you are um, and the idea of being, you know, typecast and it's the look that they're going for that fits with their creative project. So then it's thinking about, yeah, how you, how you, are, who, who are you working out who you are? That might be different from who you want to be or who you think you are. So again, trying to look at all, all, all external validation and external judgment again, going back to that. Yeah. And then once you've got that, to be able to promote yourself again, using those connections, you need to have your your brand to be able to market that that across um for your for your you know your headshots your showreel your social media all need to be and um, promoted that I'm sound I'm, I'm talking about this like I'm really confident no I'm learning about this all the time and playing around with it um but this is what I'm I'm picketing at and sometimes it can be painful like I'd love my brand to be this completely hot 25 year old but I'm not <laughs> I'm not, I'm a, I'm a mum and I usually, I would usually get typecast as a mum or as a therapist or um, the charming neurotic I've been described as and that, that hurts sometimes, you're like well I'm not like this zen completely confident sort of person, no you're a neurotic Sarah, that's who you'd be cast as, um, so then it's an embracing that a bit. <laughs> I don't know what to say about that, just <laughs> can't see my face, I don't know what to say. <laughs> I felt a lot better about it after Fleabag came out I think because love people was, I love it and people were so um so enthusiastic about it and obviously the nation kind of embraced this character I like to think of myself as Fleabag as 40 I can cope with that I'm not 40 by the way just almost um, <laughs> but yeah yeah it's um harsh and I I, I was listening um uh, listening to your podcast about um you know getting your blogs read the other day and the idea of thinking again what website or whatever looks pretty to you versus what other people want to read and again that really looking in the mirror but also looking at at your audience and um and somehow within that as well staying which is what you need to be both an actor and a psychologist an integrated person who is sure of yourself mm who actually knows your core values and who you are and then who the marketable you are. Yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky trying to balance all of those. That is so difficult. And I, I think the idea of coping with the fact that 
you don't get to fully define your brand. I think that is, that's pretty unique probably to acting. I think in psychology, we can always do different qualifications if we want. We can get different experience to make, to make ourselves what we want to be, to make our brand what we want it to be. But in acting, it sounds like people do that to you. And that, that's hard. That sounds really hard. So again, there's, I mean, there's a debate within that and some, some professionals will say something, say something different. And there's some variety in there. Like, you know, I could dye my hair and do some different things and learn some different schools and, and, and play around with that. But yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, your focus is on the audience, but also money. What are the audience going to pay for? It's a commercial world and you are being yourself within, within that commercial world and fitting into that. So I guess you can really see what I'm saying about going into that as a 20 year old still finding yourself. So it could be so really dangerous, actually. It would have been for me, I think, and really unhealthy for me. Whereas, you know, in my late 30s, I can feel I can feel much more different about that. I can I've got a reality to go back to to ground myself through that process. Yeah, yeah. And I can see how typecasting, it's almost encouraging you to fuse with a self-concept, to put it kind of in, in act terms and define yourself very tightly in one way and be inflexible mm-hmm. about that. Whereas I guess coming at it slightly later, you're more able to say like, yeah, okay, that's who I am to you, but it's not who I am to you know the people back home or these people over here. It's just who I am in this moment with you. Um, mm-hmm which is so difficult for young people, certainly in my therapy work, I find the younger my client, the more difficult it is for them to grasp that, that there are many versions of them. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and there was sort of some research about um, after you've done an acting role as well, how it literally, you know, and you can imagine this, of course, as a psychologist, you change your your roots within, you know, your, your, your brain wiring. Um, It changed a bit of your personality, how you might perceive things or regulate things. And so as an actor as well, going through lots of different roles and you can be strengthening bits of yourself, which aren't necessarily helpful. It depends on the part which you're playing. Yeah, so that idea of finding yourself and and, um, keeping a sense of identity through that journey is huge. But I I guess I guess I can see similarities with psychology as well like each client you know if I've had a really long-term client they can change you and that relationship becomes becomes significant and then depending on which model of therapy you might use as well your identity becomes different in that I think that's where I've become really attracted to um to the DDP therapy which is very much about um connecting and genuine connection and genuine acceptance and much more of bringing yourself yourself in um, and your relationship and your role. And, and in the same way in acting, I've got really interested in clowning, mm. which is, um, although you've got your, your clown mask, your nose, it's about really connecting with the audience. There is no sort of fourth wall. You're with them, you're responding to them. It's a very reciprocal and intimate relationship, really. It involves eye contact in them and passing back and forth can you say a little bit more about what ddp is because i don't think i know anything about that 
So dyadic developmental psychotherapy, the big names associated with that are Dan Hughes, he's like the godfathery figure, and then in the UK, um, Kim Golding is a name that's well known, she's my lovely supervisor, and, and Julie Hudson, there's lots of other people working in the UK on it. Um, and it's um, it can be applied to lots of different areas, but mostly it's for sort of children who've been through developmental trauma and their carers and parents, and it really focuses on relational safety and the idea that we can support children to um, become emotionally regulated through co-regulation and that'll be the therapist supporting the parent um, and co-regulating them to be able to co-regulate the child and there's lots of other lovely elements in there so for example you're co-creating meaning so for example that might mean working out with the child their story about how their past affects who they are now and what I love about it is there's this idea of pace, which is playfulness, acceptance, curiosity and empathy. And the idea that if you can support the child to be brave enough to and feel safe enough to be a little bit vulnerable, so you can kind of peek inside them and then give them the experience of having their parent and therapist accept whatever it is inside them, that, that sort of shame lifting experience that that can just be really, really powerful. Um, and often it looks like talking and playing in a room with the parent and the child. That sounds really powerful. And I guess what you were saying is that some of those principles, it feels like you're also able to live those out a bit through theatre work. Can you say a little bit more about how those two things sometimes work together? Yeah, so I think for me, the crossover point is, is clowning. I keep going back to it, but honestly think clowning is the answer to everyone's mental health issues um, <laughs> and, and human happiness. So <clears throat> the idea that you can have um, connection and engagement through playfulness. So both DDP and clowning just talk about the importance of being playful. And for me, all of this comes down to, you know, sort of polyvagal theory, beautiful stuff, which I talk about as if it's the most normal thing, but we never did it in training. I forget, I don't know if they do it in training now. Oh, we didn't. No, I learned about it post-qualification and it now is the absolute bedrock of everything I do. And I don't know why we didn't cover it in training. Yeah, I really hope it is. I really hope it is now. And if it's not, then everybody just Need, needs to be googling it um but the idea that to be in your connective playful socially engaged system in your body you need to be able to regulate yourself and both clowning psychology theater all of it is just aiming to be in that connected section where we can be reflective where we can be playful where we can be um where we can explore with language where we can be calm where we can digest things properly and so, yeah, so, so clowning, clowning is about that, that playfulness causing a connection, causing engagement. And in the same way, that's so powerful. All of these are nonverbal signs of safety, absolutely essential within the therapy room when you're working with developmental trauma and absolutely essential within the creative arts to let people, you know, show vulnerability and in, enjoy things as an audience. It's all about human safety and connection. I think it's so lovely to to hear how you can use your skills in both areas and um, to bring about change and I imagine that there are a lot of people who maybe they're not easy to engage in the therapy room 
but they can engage with clowning and likewise there'll be other people who pro- probably aren't ready for clowning but might be able to make a start in therapy and I, I just love that you've got both of those in your toolkit that you can use kind of with different people at different moments in their journey I think that's lovely yeah I mean I have I have really enjoyed putting those those bits together and I particularly loved sort of talking <clears throat> doing the work with the unicorn theatre talking about you know, I can say that there's all these clever things. I can talk about your nervous system and your poly, polyvagus nerve and all of these things, but really the fundamentals of what you do as theatre practitioners. So your warm up exercises where you're using breath, which as we know, you know, polyvagal theory, you know, is all calming the body and the nervous system, where you're using repetitive um, actions, where you're using um, eye contact and connection, just in even in those warm-up games, those are magic, those are powerful things, those are therapeutic aims for lots of people, and they're just standard, so a lot of what I was doing with the theatre was saying, you are doing amazing stuff for children's resilience, you are, you just didn't know the clever words that went along beside it. And actually I think psychology could learn so much from that theater world, from just watching how humans connect and express and articulate and get healthy um, outside of clinical setting. Mm, absolutely, and the, the mind-body connection as well. Yeah. So much of theater is about being in your body in the present moment, isn't it? And we're so rubbish at that sometimes in psychology. It's certainly something that I feel I'm now integrating into my work but again um, we did actually in in my training institutions defense we did do a session on yoga nidra but it was right at the end (laughs) Um, when really I feel like that should be a thread all the way through your training you should never be forgetting that the person lives in the body that we don't kind of float around in a tank Um, But one thing I've really wanted to ask you about, um, and as soon as I knew that you were coming on, I I really wanted to ask about this, is, you know, with all of this judgment floating about in both sides of your work, and psychologists, we're all terrified of each other, right? I mean, the most common thing I hear from people in the community is I don't want to publish a blog post because I'm scared of what other psychologists will think. So there's certainly, you know, judgment within the psychology community too. Um, and it sounds like just a crazy amount of judgment in the acting world. How do you look after yourself amongst all that? Mm-hmm. Well, you've made a big assumption there that I do look after myself. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, so how I strive to look after myself and what puts all of that together for me is sort of compassion-focused therapy, Um response and I went to this most amazing workshop that was really life-changing for me it was put on by the compassionate um oh they've got two names the compassionate um focused therapy compassionate well-being I I forget they've got two words it's the Paul Gill but I'm in that and I get confused about the name too I'll link to it so that people can find it two websites on there yeah (laughs) um so they'd um asked Deirdre Fay who's an American um therapist I can't remember her background I think she might be a social work practitioner um but she's really into yoga and um and she came over and did a workshop in Derby the other year and it was just it was just incredible because it integrated, just like you said, the body and the mind bit. And it was sort of using yoga moves, but in line with what your with what your thoughts were. And again, about connection. And 
as part of that, there was this huge bit that just normalized it all for me and made me feel much more able to connect with other people and lose judgments. So mm-hmm. there was this exercise where, I mean, we talked about the needs, attachment needs of a baby. If you hadn't guessed, I'm completely attachment obsessed. Um, so how as a baby, we all want to be delighted in and we all need to be cared for and we all want to feel connected. And we never deny a baby those needs. And as adults, we might still have those needs. And I think I, I think we do. I think a lot of people feel like those needs aren't met. And um, we had to walk around and stop and make eye contact with a random stranger we just met at this conference in a room. Oh, wow. And just take a moment to say, me too. Me too, I want to be delighted in and I want to be valued. And I yearn for connection. And that was so powerful. Like I feel like quite, I could get quite tearful now. But that idea that we're all in that and all striving for the same thing, that just immensely helps me with that judgment idea. We are all trying to connect. We are all just trying to feel valuable. Um, and I think what theatre and psychology and those sorts of experiences do is that embracing and almost celebration and pride in our vulnerability. That's so far from where I was in my 20s when I was trying to be, you know, perfectionist and completely cognitive and obsessed with being high achieving. And so because of absolute fear of judgment. Um, So to move to that, just that more compassionate accepting has just been really helpful for me. And I think that's a really powerful note to finish on. Um, Thank you so much for sharing so many fascinating and really valuable insights. So I think there are going to be lots of people who want to look you up and connect with you after this. So where can people find you? Um, yeah, I'm on I'm on Twitter, Sarah underscore Felton underscore actor. So I'm not. That's my Instagram. My Instagram is Sarah <laughs> underscore Felton underscore actor. Um, and that often has some of my mental health consultancy work for creative arts projects. Um, and um, and then on Twitter. I'm also Dr. Sarah Wassell on Twitter, so you can see bits there, because for all of this, I'm completely unintegrated with many different identities. And then on the DDP website, if you need to find a therapist, my full um, CVs on the find a therapist section there um, and my contact details there. Brilliant. And I will link up to all of that so that people can find you really easily in the show notes. Um, So thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today. Oh, thank you, Rosie. It's been lovely. (laughs) Before you go, I just wanted to check something out with you because I don't know if this is just me, but do you sometimes wake up at two o'clock in the morning worried that you've made a terrible error that's going to bring professional ruin upon you and disgrace your family? (laughs) I'm laughing now, but when I first set up in private practice, I was completely terrified that I'd miss something really big when I was setting up my insurance or data protection practices. Even now, three years in, I sometimes catch myself wondering if I've really covered all the bases properly. And it's hard, no, actually it's impossible, to think creatively and have the impact you should be having in your practice if you aren't confident that you have a secure business underneath you. But it can be really overwhelming to figure out exactly what you need to prioritise before those clients start coming in. So I've created a free checklist plus resources list to take the thinking out of it. Tick off every box and you can see your clients confident in the knowledge that you have everything in place for your security and theirs. 
You can download it now from psychologist.drosie.co.uk forward slash client hyphen checklist. And the link is in the show notes. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Business of Psychology podcast. If you share my passion for doing more than therapy, then make sure you come over and join my free Do More Than Therapy Facebook community, where you can work on getting your big ideas off the ground with like-minded psychologists and therapists. I'd also love it if you could leave this show a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. It will help more of the people who need it to find it. See you next week for more tips and inspirational stories to help you do more than therapy.